Welcome back to another Film Nerds Roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Matt Scalisi. And uh, with me today, once again, Graham Flanagan from uh, New York City and Ben Flanagan coming to us from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Hello. So today we're going uh, to be talking about the Coen Brothers' latest release, Burn After Reading, uh, which has, uh, you know, it's done pretty well with the critics. Um Somebody give me uh, an idea of how this thing's doing at the box office. Yeah, well, it, uh, it opened number one, uh, and with the biggest numbers for the Coens ever, with about nineteen point five million its first weekend, and then it dropped about forty percent in its second week to about eleven million, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so pretty good for by the Coen Brothers standards. Yeah, definitely a lot of star power, which we'll get into uh, a little bit later. But, you know, uh, a return to broad comedy for the Coens after what would definitely be considered probably their darkest uh, and and most dramatic fe- feature yet, which was uh, No Country for Old Men, the Best Picture winner from 2007. Um basically uh, and and again, as always with our our film nerds discussion, we we will we will have a few spoilers in here, so if you haven't seen it, uh, you probably want to switch it off now. But basically, Burn After Reading uh, is a big, giant, uh, labyrinthine mess of a, of a spy movie. Uh, you know, starting off with uh, Francis McDormand's character, Linda, uh, basically trying to get some cosmetic surgery for herself, evolves through a number of twists and turns into... Secret uh, government information being stolen uh, and being shopped around to uh, <laughs> other countries. Uh, people get killed. People get maimed. People get lost. Uh, and and it's it's a pretty big mess that's probably impossible for us to try and sum up here uh, during the podcast. So let's just speak in kind of generalities in terms of what we think of. Uh, the story in Burn After Reading, in terms of writing, in terms of uh, crafting a story, where do you guys think this falls for the Coen brothers? Uh, you know, I think that this movie is a big improvement over the Lady Killers, which to me is the Coen brothers' only bad movie. Uh, and I think it's better than Intolerable Cruelty, too. But this is one that I would compare to Intolerable Cruelty, and I'd even compare it to uh, what some people would call arguably their best movie. Not me, not necessarily The Big Lebowski. And uh, I also think it's better than A Brother or Art Thou. Now, um, I think uh, if I were going to give it a letter grade, I'd probably go B, B or B plus, maybe even B minus, just depending on how I'm feeling. But I've only seen it one time, and when it comes to the Coen Brothers, you know, as you guys know, repeat viewings are pretty much going to enhance the experience over and over and over. And uh, I haven't seen a Coen Brothers movie that I, um, you know, have watched over and over that I didn't enjoy more, uh, with the exception of the Lady Killers, which I enjoyed less and less as I watched it. Um, but I, I, you know, it, it, to me, we've had ourselves another kind of authentic Coen Brothers experience. Uh, like I said, much more so than the Lady Killers, and even No Country for Old Men, which I really do feel like was a major departure 
for the Coen brothers, you know, although it's a great movie. And, uh, you know, maybe it has something to do with the fact that those movies were adaptations and this is actually a, a Coen brothers original screenplay. Um, but this time it really does feel like a Coen's experience. And that might have a lot to do with the fact that Carter Burwell's score kind of echoes his previous uh, works with the Coens, uh, like Fargo and Barton Fink. But uh, overall, I think it's a good movie, and maybe it's a really good movie uh, the next time I see it. I give it an A. Um, I think it's their best overall comedy since The Big Lebowski, uh, and that's what that's more than ten years, and they've made quite a few comedies uh, since since then, and that's saying a lot. Um, I think that that even though this is definitely a dark comedy. It's uh, much lighter fare than we're used to from the Coen Brothers. Um, you know, even though there is a lot of uh, a murder and, and deception and adultery and all that going on, the stakes aren't really all that high. So it's just kind of it's kind of a light entertainment for them. And I th- I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think it feels in a lot of ways like. Don't take this the wrong way, like uh, a TV movie where you can tune in for some light entertainment, go from point A to B, you're, you're done, like that's a TV movie. So I kind of feel like this is their TV movie, and it's it's an excellent TV movie, uh, kind of like their duel, you might say. <laughs> I, I I definitely didn't think of it as a as a TV movie watching it. Uh, and Graham, you mentioned this is this is a dark comedy. And, and I'll, I'll go ahead and, and open up the debate here, knowing that I'm going to be the only one on this side. But I didn't like Burn After Reading. In fact, I'd, I'd say overall I have a negative impression of it. Uh, and that's this is only the second time I could say that about a Coen Brothers movie. And I'm, I'm with Ben on The Lady Killers. Um, you know, and I think bottom line is that there's, there's definitely a lot of stuff to admire about this movie. It's got an absolutely crazy plot. Um, that that kind of blows your mind, and, and in that sense, it is a lot like the Big Lebowski. Um, it has certainly technically, uh, it's great to experience. the The Burwell score is great. The cinematography is fantastic. It's uh, really they do not miss uh, a step um, with their new cinematographer Emmanuel Lubeski, who's uh, obviously a very accomplished guy. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like a lot of what they did visually, too. My problem comes in uh, the screenplay. And to me, that, that darkness that you mentioned, to me, th- there is kind of a departure here from their earlier comedic films. I think this is a lot darker, uh, almost to the point where I kind of don't know what to do with it um, as a viewer. I don't really know what I should be feeling. I don't know if I should care about the characters at all. I don't know if I should be... Uh, you know, distant from them and, and laughing at them and mocking them. And, you know, I, I think Fargo had a little bit of that where we're supposed to be sort of detached from it and and just watching almost gleefully as these terrible things happen to these people. Um, but, but it doesn't have... It's not quite as dramatic as Fargo. It is played more as a comedy. And, and I think that just... For me, as a as an as an audience member, it was a little confusing. I, I didn't quite know how to feel. Do you guys do you guys see where I'm coming from at all on this? Yes, uh, I, do, I do. I see exactly where you're coming from. Um, I don't know that it's a bad thing. I think this is a really unusual movie in how it's perceived by the audience. I think that 
Uh, I think somebody referred to the CIA characters in the film as kind of a Greek chorus, and I think that's a fair comparison, but I also think that the CIA kind of reflects the audience, where they know exactly what has happened, but they really just don't know what to think about it at all. And uh, the J.K. Simmons character, to me, he might as well be in the audience, uh, because, he, like I said, he has no clue how to react to the craziness that's been going on, and uh, the, what, how Graham referred to it, and how J.K. Simmons referred to it is exactly right as a cluster basically and uh that, that, that you know that's pretty much what the movie is and um we just took the you podcast know, to, to an r rating there well you can beep it in the editing can't you yeah but, i'm um, sure i can just do that yeah uh and, and honestly matt i've got the same i think similar issues with the script uh that you do i think the script just doesn't really have the same kind of oomph for firepower you know like we've seen in previous Coen brother efforts, you know, uh, you know, looking back on um, something like Miller's Crossing, which is just a jam-packed script, um, Hudsucker Proxy, Barton Fink, and Raising Arizona, where it seems like just oodles of effort went into it. Uh, it's, it's hard to top those, I know, but you know, with the Coen brothers at this point, we've got really high expectations, and a lot of the dialogue in this movie was really fun, but it wasn't quite as unique at the. At, those scripts of what you know in terms of what they've written before i think uh there are you know your traditional coen brothers characters and character types that we see running around in this movie i think osborne cox is probably the best example of that and maybe those cia characters but uh honestly like i said it just doesn't really have that certain thing that the coen brothers have brought in the past you know honestly i'm sorry man just to kind of categorize this i i think it's kind of a mid-level cone brothers movie although it's i do think it's good yeah i agree graham you know ben ben mentioned uh you know sort of comparing this as a screenplay to those early those early films miller's crossing and barton fink and raising arizona a lot of people you know certain and sort of critics of the of the cone brothers mainly said that those movies were overwritten you know that that it's it's so uh it's so outlandish, and the and the writing is so, uh, you know, so overdone that, uh, it, you know, it, it became unlikable to a certain element of the audience. Obviously, I don't think in, any of us feel that way. But do you feel? What category would you fall in? Would you say Burn After Reading is is a more mature screenplay than those, or do you think it is a less uh, interesting screenplay than that? How would you characterize it? No, I. I... I think that I like the point about it being a cluster because that's what the the Coens designed it to be. This this movie is about simple people uh, uh, by all means, but it is very complex the way that it's uh, uh, layered and, and and put together. Uh, you've got you know three different little universes of characters going on in this movie: the John Malkovich character the George Clooney character, and then the characters that work in the gym. And then they're all uh, connected together uh, in some way or another. But they all kind of, they're all, their own little worlds all exist in and of themselves at, at times during the movie. And look, in all of the other Coen Brothers movies, there is a clear protagonist. There is a sympathetic character. Tell me who the sympathetic character is in this movie. The only, the only who really... has. <laughs> The only likable I know what you're going to say. Go ahead and say it. Yeah, the only likable character, really, is Chad, who, of course, uh, you know, spoiler alert once again, Chad doesn't make it through three-quarters of the movie. <laughs> no, why is he? But he's 
he's an idiot. He has only his self-interest at heart. He's he's uh, only interested in, in in listening to whatever the hell is on his iPod, which I really want to know. <laughs> they should release the, 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 the you know honestly they should release two separate soundtracks. What's on his iPod and the score, Carter Burwell's score. But right, Graham, I mean, you know, I think. Wait, uh, wait, 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 let me let me finish my point here. He okay. He only has his self-interest at heart. As does George Clooney, who is sick in his own perverted way that we find out. Frances McDormand will stop at nothing, even selling national secrets to the Russians to get her cosmetic surgery. Okay, Matt, I thought you were going to pick the easy choice of who's the only sympathetic character in this movie and say the Richard Jenkins character. Right, right. But that's a good, that's a good that, point, yeah. But the, No, but he's not because the fact that he is so uh, in love with such an idiot. Right, right. <laughs> prevents him from being sympathetic thus this movie has no sympathetic characters it's one of those stories where everybody is damned they've damned themselves and you can't just sit back and laugh and laugh as they all meet their own respective dooms you know i and i think that's you know you i think you've characterized it perfectly graham and that to me i think lays out why it's so hard for me to enjoy it uh is uh, it is one of those it is one of those movies that there's just not a lot to to latch on to and and love other than destruction and uh and chaos and and pain really and you know in a comedy that's tough to do and 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 i've i've pointed this out before too and i want i want to i want to get both of your takes on this uh i can't think of a of a situation in a live action movie where uh the death of a character particularly the violent death of a character is played up for laughs. I think it's really hard to laugh when, say, someone gets shot in the face or uh, gets a you know a pickaxe to the head, uh, and even more so when it's shown in any kind of graphic manner. How do you guys feel about that? Does it does it kill the comedy for you? Did you laugh at those moments? I think it's appropriate to laugh during that part, Matt. But um, it, it's kind of a it's kind of a tricky. Um, I don't know. It kind of gives you a tricky mode of thinking there. Once it happens, I, I think that it, like I said, it's appropriate to laugh. But I think it's the scariest scene in the whole movie. Uh, you know, particularly uh, when you when you notice what Chad is doing right, right before the blast, and he's smiling when he comes out of the closet. And uh, um, that smile, really, that image, really kind of stuck with me throughout the rest of the movie. And I think that, uh, I you know, I think Clooney's reaction is what kind of generates most of the laughs from people in the theater. In my theater, anyway, they're laughing at how kind of aloof Clooney is to uh, having just shot a complete stranger in the face. Um, so I don't think it, I don't think the scene's necessarily, you know, played for laughs. I think it really depends on the audience and Graham and like everybody is really kind of how they put it, this whole movie into perspective I don't know. I just I don't really know what to think still because you have all of these uh, kind of thinly layered characters that we know nothing about, and really when when things happen to them we don't really care because we're still kind of on the outside looking in. We're never really let in uh, to their heads and really into their motives. So you know you can either laugh or not. It just depends. I, but I, I think it's fine if you do. Listen, when that when that scene happened and when I saw it. 
it caught me totally off guard. I did not think that they were going to kill off Brad Pitt at that point in the movie. Uh, but when it happened, I said something like, whoa, whoa. Look, I'm a big fan of of screenplays and movies in general that have big surprises, things that 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 all, uh, that you totally you did not expect. Period. This counts as that. I did not expect it at all. And I'm not going to hold that against the Coen Brothers for killing off a, a character that we all love, so to speak. You know, the, the most likable character, quote unquote. You, a lot of people might call him the most unlikable character in the movie. <laughs> but well, great. But but listen, his death is foretold in the movie. When George Clooney's character earlier on says, "When I'm in the moment, I can squeeze." You know, you you get in the zone and you kill. You will squeeze the trigger immediately. That was foreshadowed. That's why it happened in the movie. And that he was just reacting. He was just. I mean, he was just basically uh, referencing what he said earlier in the movie by killing Brad Pitt. So it falls nice and evenly and cleanly into this screenplay. And look, this is a ridiculous farce, this movie, but it's one that they've tried to ground and base in a realistic environment. And when when you got a trained U.S. Marshal with a gun and he, he sees somebody coming out of the, a closet where he is, realistically, he's probably going to shoot him in the face. And that brings you back into reality. And that there you have it. I think it worked fine. Graham, let me ask you this. Um, when... Chad gets shot in the face and killed. This is supposedly an important character. What does it really do for the movie? Uh, where do we stand once Chad is gone? I mean, does it basically just show us that this situation's a lot, lot more dangerous than these morons really think it is or realize that it is? But what does losing that character really do for the story? It, well, it, 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 uh, what's important is it allows us to see what these characters do once the stakes have been raised like this. Is George Clooney gonna gonna uh, come clean about it? Is he gonna is he gonna dump the body in the river in the Potomac? Is Frances McDormand gonna just stop and, and confess everything, or is she gonna continue trying her surgeries? We know the answers to both these questions, and that's what makes it this movie an even funnier dark comedy. And that's where the Coens have, have succeeded again. Well, I just. You know, with these characters, I just didn't feel very invested in any of them, and maybe that's the point. Maybe maybe Osborne Cox uh, is the only one we really get invested in, uh, because I mean, he's he's you know who we start out with and who we ultimately end up with in this movie. He kind of bookends it, and he's the central character. If there's a protagonist or kind of an antihero, it's definitely Osborne Cox. But with you know with with the death of Brad Pitt and the death of some other characters, I just wasn't really affected by it because I just I, I wasn't as involved with these characters like I have certainly been in uh, past Conan Brothers characters. But like I said, maybe that's the point. Well, real quick, these are these are really well defined and drawn out characters. Okay, on the, on the outside, on the outside though. No, no. All these characters are paying the price for their own actions, and everything that they do is kind of answered by something that happens pre, you know, pre, uh, earlier on in the movie. I mean, look at Osborne Cox. Uh, he, as he's after he's been reassigned or fired or whatever you want to call it, for having quote unquote a drinking problem, he's denying having a drinking problem. A drinking problem. I have a drinking problem, and he leaves the room. Cut to him cracking ice so he can make his drink. You know, he's he's a moron just like the rest of them. He denies he has a drinking problem, and he goes right home and makes a rum and coke. You know, he 
all these all these characters are paying for their own sins. And they all, in, in the Coens' eyes, in my opinion, they all deserve whatever they get. It's pretty, and that's what gives it. A, that's what gives it a little more substance than I think you guys are giving it credit. Well, for. it's pretty vindictive, though, and I think the problem is here, Graham, that we've seen the Coens make bad bad guys pay for their sins before uh, on film, but we haven't seen them do it in what is. I think that we can still define this movie as a broad comedy. There's dramatic elements to it, like we've said. I think it's still a broad comedy, and I think they're playing the uh, the sort of you know justice being meted out here for laughs. And I don't. I, I think really, look, the Lady Killers had a lot of problems, but to me, it, it it was fundamentally flawed in that it was a it was a broad comedy whose laughs were based on bad people dying and getting what was getting what was quote unquote coming to them, and look. Some people, I guess, can take some some laughs from that and some joy from that. But I think for a lot of people, and I would probably put myself in that category. Look, I may not have even known it going into this movie, but I think this movie has told me about myself that I don't really enjoy watching uh, people get their comeuppance necessarily for laughs, especially when it's in an extremely dark uh, way, you know? And I think that is the the very basis of the comedy in this in this film is hey look at all these idiots and let's watch them get what they deserve it's pretty it's okay, pretty dark and in. vindictive you know well this plays into i think the political undertones that are really tearing at your let's soul go. let's go because you don't want people you don't think it's funny you say to see people get come up for their mistakes just like you don't want to see Brooke bush brought up on war crimes <laughs> for going into a war that he knew was wrong. You don't think that that would be funny, while a lot of other people, a lot of people that were in my theater probably would think it would be funny for him and a lot of other people to pay for their sins. But look, I, Graham, just, just because I or anyone else has any kind of political beliefs doesn't mean that the only people in the world who've ever done anything evil are on my side, are Republicans, by the way. I, I mean... I, I, if we made a movie here where Osama bin Laden ends up, you know, getting uh, getting hacked in the face with a with an axe of some kind, I wouldn't really find it funny. I mean, I I think it's just the type of person you are, and I think some people uh, do like do get real joy out of seeing the wicked punished, and some people don't. I don't think I don't think I'm applying uh, this specifically to uh, George W. Bush or anybody else. I mean. Look, this, these are. Uh, if anything, we're talking about Francis McDormand could could most closely be considered a kind of a Hollywood type. You know, she's uh, she's totally self consumed. She's uh, she's got very uh, aesthetic concerns, obviously. Uh, and, and you know, I, we want to see her. I think more than anything, it's frustrating to see that she's the one that kind of gets away with it all in the end. She's she's not punished for what she for you know for her sins in this movie. She's this movie's villain too. Uh, you know, I, I would say she is. Um, she's the antagonist because I mean, she's the she's to me she's the most self character in the movie. And Graham, you referred to Richard Jenkins. Well, Tilda Swinton's pretty bad. Well, yeah, but she, she has a, a pretty a much more limited role than Francis uh, McDormand, and Francis McDormand has uh, pretty severe motives throughout the movie too, much more so than Tilda Swinton. To me, 
But uh, you referred to Richard Jenkins. I think that uh, his line in the movie uh, where he says, you've changed, Linda, and that's sad. I think um, that kind of plays into your idea about why he's in love with a buffoon like this. I think that he might have fallen for her before, and that line, you've changed, Linda, kind of tells that story you know, as to why you know why she acts the way she does now why she's so concerned with her body you know particularly you know possibly working in a place named hard bodies makes somebody insecure uh and working with somebody like chad but um i can't really decide what i think about that character anyway um or you know the amount of screen time that he gets i think he's a really you know terrific pathetic character on the surface but honestly i don't think he involved you know really belongs in the bigger picture uh and i think that you could say the same about a few of the characters in the movie that they just don't really figure into the big picture of the whole thing. And, uh, the, the theme, you know, one of the themes in what we've been talking about here is that the stakes just aren't that high. And, uh, I just don't really, I don't really, uh, feel like I said, so invested in either the story or the characters. And when things happen, I can kind of shrug my shoulders and laugh at the things that are going on and appreciate the technical aspects of the movie. Uh, but honestly, um, nothing, nothing really happens. And I mean that again, that's just that that's what's said at the end of the movie. And they say, yeah, nothing did happen. Let's just move on. And I think that's, you know, I think that's what the audience will do. Well, that's, I buy, they're commenting on their own movie right there. They're telling you what it was and I buy it. I'm, I'm eating it up. I'm, I'm the target audience on this because I, you know, they do have a. I mean, they do have a lot of characters that might seem extraneous, okay, like Richard Jenkins. But I think I thought it worked perfectly because it gave it, the, it gave the movie another dimension. They didn't stick with it for too long, to where it, it felt like, why get, let's get back to the main story. I felt like there, there's so many characters in this. They they work so well. All of them are so well crafted, and it's like just enough time is spent on all of them to where it, for me it just came together perfectly. Yeah, but we don't. Really- get to know any of them and you know these characters as opposed to so many they've had before that they're just there isn't much texture to them and i mean what's the point of that kind of exercise to make a movie where nothing happens and for the point of the movie to be nothing has happened let's just move on what's the a lot happens but it just doesn't really (laughs) affect the bigger picture and i do i totally disagree that there's not like texture and i've tried to give examples as to why I think these characters are well-crafted and, and more interesting than people are giving them credit for today. I think, Graham, I think I would agree with you that there's a lot to them, and, and I think that even some of them I actually enjoy watching, and I think they're interesting, particularly George Clooney's character, uh, Harry Farr. He's, I, I could watch a whole movie. I could watch another movie of that guy. Um, he deserves he just, his own movie. He's so despicable and, and just so disgusting, you know, and so weird, has all these little weird things about him. But I think he's one of the rare characters in this movie. You know, you could probably also say Chad, and you could probably, uh, you know, you could probably point to uh, the the television personality from Seattle as just kind of those cartoonish uh, Coen Brothers characters. You know, these guys, these guys in their... For, for most of their careers here, their characters—it's not that they haven't been. Uh, there's, there's no depth to them, or but 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 they're very broadly drawn and they're very easily and quickly identifiable. Uh, almost almost by the time the first line comes out of their mouth in the film, you kind of have an idea of of who all of their characters are that we see and and what their thing is, um, because they're they're so outrageous and broad and and cartoonish and. 
I think this movie steps into a world that we don't see the Coen brothers go into a lot because even the Big Lebowski and even uh, Intolerable Cruelty had very, uh, very cartoonish, I'll stick with that word, elements about them. You know, uh, there there are parts of Intolerable Cruelty where, uh, you know, when George Clooney steps into the old man's office, it suddenly becomes a really weird comic book type movie in those scenes. And uh, and obviously in The Big Lebowski, there's just there's stuff all over the place that that doesn't fit into that sort of real world gritty feel to it. And this is a movie that doesn't really make a lot of departures from reality. It's crazy and it's and it's wacky, but. All of it's pretty plausible in, in a way, and it's and it's you know the, the way that the characters act and the way they speak uh, is very real world, and that's just something we don't see from the Coen Brothers a lot. And I think that's sort of what leaves Ben and and myself coming away from it saying maybe it doesn't feel like uh, it pops as much as as previous Coen Brothers movies. I I really admire what they did, and I would never say that Burn After Reading doesn't have. A lot of skill put into it and a lot of depth to it. I guess I just don't enjoy it as well, much as I enjoy the other ones. Let me touch on what you were saying there for a second, Matt, in terms of how secondary characters with such minimal screen time, uh, whether or not they're really used to their fullest potential. Uh, and I think if you compare this to what they've done and what they have achieved in those terms uh, in the past, if you take a look at something like Fargo, or to me, every single character, no matter how long or short their screen time is, contributes to the big picture of the movie. Uh, and you look at, uh, you know, if you look at Raising Arizona, or you know, William Forsythe has a minimal role, or the the man who plays uh, Nathan Arizona has a small role. These guys provide so much more depth uh, on and beneath the surface, much more than most of the characters in Burn After Reading. It's, it's like- who? Who's an example of someone that does not contribute to the narrative? I, okay, let, let, let me let me rephrase in terms of like contributing to the narrative. I, you know, I think that they're there and they're pushing it along. What narrative there might be? Like, uh, okay, how about the uh, employee, the custodian in Hard Bodies? Well, he he, <laughs> right. he was silly. He was silly, and he had some funny lines. But all they were were just little funny lines that you know that it almost seemed like they were modeled after the Pedro character in Napoleon Dynamite. It was just a little too easy and a little too broad for the Coens. They're, they're, they're capable of much more than that, than a dude with a Spanish accent who repeats the same thing over and over. And I think, I, I, Graham, I think repetitive dialogue is one of their strengths, you know? But in that case, it was just like, okay, he's Hispanic and he talks funny. I agree they might have given him the line maybe one time too many, but look, that, that it, what, what more can you ask from that character? You know, he's even referenced again later when they say maybe he can find another CD or something like that, and that was funny when they when they reminded you of him. I, golly, you know, you're, so you're going to punish them. That's the only character that you can think of, first That was the all. first one. No, no, no. That, no, that was and, the first and, one. And you're punishing what about Clooney's wife? For saying what about Clooney's wife? Who? You know, because I mean, like, the, one of the funniest scenes comes in the movie, you know, that, that that's in the movie is when she's at that broadcast you mentioned before. But what does that really even do for the movie? I'll tell you what it does. It what? shows that, that everybody's movie is deceiving or being deceived. Okay? And that changes your perspective on George Clooney's character. You think he's like a womanizing guy that is satisfying his wife and he's getting away with all this stuff. When in fact, He's being cheated on too. He's not right. satisfying his own wife. I got that. I got that after she made the appearance on the show. 
You know, that's I mean? because that's what the appearance on the show in the in, in the dressing room is supposed to do. Mm. That's a surprise, just like Brad Pitt getting shot. Right. Well, I don't know. I, you know, it, and it, it changes his character. It turns him into a whiny <laughs> little baby. Okay. Well, honestly, but, but, you know, and, and, and I'll refer to another character too, the Tilda Swinton character, who I thought, you know, I thought she was well done, and she played, she played, a, you know, the adulteress that she reflected uh, George Clooney, and like you said, everybody's being deceived, and she does that. But she, I just don't, I, I don't know. Like there, there just wasn't much to her. And she played the part well, and Tilda Swinton's a brilliant actress, and it's fun to see her kind of uh, have that kind of with George Clooney after, especially after seeing him. That's all fun and all. I don't know character really does. One thing interesting, real quick, Matt, yeah. that I just want to touch on before you move on is with her character, okay, first of all, the scene in the, in the doctor's office is amazing. A-plus, hilarious. Brooke, can you agree with me there? Uh, yeah, it's, it's great. It's, it's fantastic. It's, it's sure it's good for a laugh. Yeah. It's a good joke. What's yeah. it? All right. So then, what happens? It's, it's something really, really interesting that happens with her character is to me that okay. At first, it's a thrill for for George Clooney to be hooking up with her. You kind of feel the excitement with that little affair that's going on, the chemistry. But then she manages as she becomes more and more herself. She she begins colder and indifferent to him and turns him off, right? But she still is, like, committed to him and sees George Clooney as her boyfriend. But you can see him, like, becoming less and less interested, as, you know, when he when he lies to her saying, oh, yeah, I'm fully committed to you, when you know he's not anymore. And and what she does, I mean, she starts to act in this, this kind of matronly, uh, cold manner that's really interesting to me that that basically changes your, your perception of her uh both physically and uh, from a personality standpoint in the movie. I just didn't get, you know, I I don't want to call that a stretch, Graham, uh, but I just didn't really get much else from her character other than they've written something with Tilda Swinton in mind, their friend Tilda Swinton or somebody that they've always wanted to work with. It's just like, here's something well, that's you can just, play. Well, that's just a major, no, I'm not, that's not a stretch. That's not something that I, like, have been lingering on after the movie. That's something that I remember, like, when they were at dinner in the movie, and uh, like towards the middle, near you know the second part of the movie, I, I remember thinking, "Wow, like I, I she was maybe I could see why she was desirable. Now she's she's terrible, and she's just going to turn George Clooney into another John Malcolm, uh, another uh, Oswald Cox, miserable guy." I don't think so. But see, Grant, uh, and we're getting off track here. I know, Matt, but what she doesn't really affect to me George Clooney because George Clooney, I, I think his motive throughout the movie. Is just sex, basically. He j- that's all he's interested in. He's interested in betting women, jogging. Yeah, and, he's, he obviously uh, has pretty low standards because he's he's yeah. out here going on dating sites, just sort of picking up whatever he can get on these dating websites. Yes, and, you know. Right. So, what does he care about, Tilda Swinton? You know. But he obviously made enough of a. Okay, he made more of a commitment to her than he did that other random girl that we only see once. Okay. Well, let's let me let me. Uh, we're going to go ahead and, and probably wrap this up, but I do want to give. I, w- I want to get one more sort of response from you guys on this, uh, and it, it it comes from the biggest laugh I think I got from the movie, which is when the uh, when Linda goes on the, her date, uh, both of her dates, they go to see a movie called Coming Up Daisy, which stars uh, Dermot Mulroney and uh, and Claire Danes, and it's 
you know, the the one little clip of it we get to see is just this sort of crazy parody, uh, you know, in the in the best possible way that that uh, the Coen Brothers, you know, they can just flesh out a a well done overdone genre like nobody's business, um, and, and they have done romantic comedy before in their own way, but it, it, they put they put their own sort of dark twist on it. What I want to ask you guys is. It, in a way, would you see Coming Up Daisy? Would you see a Coen Brothers uh, movie, you know, that goes back and and plays straight up uh, a recreation of a genre, not their own twist on it, but you know, in the way that the Hudsucker Proxy was, or Miller's Crossing, these uh, a movie that kind of the Coen Brothers haven't done in a while uh, that just tries to faithfully recreate a sort of outdated and and uh, extinct genre do, do you guys think they should get back to that no uh i'll answer that first graham but no i don't think so because i mean even you matt can appreciate maybe this argument and if you look at something like grindhouse which tried to do uh something like it i think you'd probably call that experiment of failure right or Le- no i agree yeah I agree. Uh, would, yeah leatherheads which was also a failure at recreating a screwball comedy although i do think the coen brothers are you know much more capable of doing that for the twists on the genres you know than rather just faithfully recreating them Graham do you do you what do you think I, I think that the Coen brothers are right where they need to be right now they've made two winners in a row in my opinion two totally different films that both succeed in their own ways and this movie to me is a totally original movie it's got their stank all over it and that's a good thing. I mean, uh, I, I just I want to I want them to keep making their own types of movies that kind of define themselves. You know, I don't like you know Coen Brothers movies. It's hard to put them in a genre other than Coen Brothers movies. You know, it's hard to call them anything else. You know, you can call Miller Miller's Crossing as a gangster movie, but it doesn't feel like any other gangster movie I've ever seen. Um, but the real quick about coming up daisies, you know, yes, it's very funny. But man, when they uh, when they ha- they tell the joke and then they cut to the first guy that Francis Dorman is is with and you see his reaction it's like he's watching Triumph of the Will he's in the, he's in the middle he's an hour in or something I mean well, do you remember do you remember on scary. his do you remember on his uh, social network profile it said dislikes humor no I didn't see that I missed so, that totally yeah. no George George Clooney made that scene to me like, oh yeah he, he made that joke and honestly I don't really get. Uh, why they included Dermot Mulroney and Claire Danes, why they emphasized that. She wasn't that even like, in the movie. She's just on well, the poster. It just seemed that that kind of shot seems kind of beneath the Coen brothers, and it seems more up Ben Stiller's alley when he's making something like Tropic Thunder. But you know, it, but I did think the joke was funny, all because of George Clooney. Uh, but listen, um, when, when you talk about how they're right where they need to be, and they've made two winners in a row, and I might catch some flack from the apologists out there, but it, it kind of feels like these movies are winners in the same way, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg had winners with, you know, War of the Worlds and The Terminal and Munich. While these movies are all really good and they have their names on them and they've got the brand on it, they still do not feel like genuine Steven Spielberg experiences from the past. And they've seemed to lost uh, something that they once had. And well, we're not living in the past, Ben. Yeah, but Graham, but I Graham, completely I completely mean, agree with you, Ben, on this. I, I think they're good. They're really good movies, and I can't find a whole lot to say bad about them. But I think the the thing that bothers me the most about them is 
they've lost the style. They've lost the thing that gave their films a signature and an identity. And in a way, even though it's totally not fair of me to judge these movies based on everything else the Coen brothers have made, I can't help it because I've seen those movies and my brain just wants to do it. It wants to see something that feels like the Coen brothers. Well, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, it kind of reminds me of George Lucas too. I mean, put it, this is kind of a weird analogy, but the Coen Brothers they make they make uh, their their movies that have their personality and their stamp on it. Something you know, we'll say they stopped at the Big Lebowski, and then they decided to try you know some things new that kind of uh, went away from what they were used to in the process. They had uh, come to know and uh, deliver every single time, and then they kind of went back tried to go back to what they were used to and they didn't quite remember how to do it and that kind of the reason I bring up George Lucas is because he made you know the first Star Wars movie he takes a long break and then he tries to make it again and it's just not it you know what i mean and with the Coen brothers they go and they make intolerable cruelty and they make the man who wasn't there and then uh, No Country for Old Men, which was a great movie, but totally different from what they've done before. And then they come out here and they make Burn After Reading, which feels like a Coen Brothers movie of you know the 90s and uh, the early 90s and part of the 80s. But it's just not quite the same, and it seems like that's what they were going for. I think that this movie is so funny and so tightly crafted that I have to say that it does feel like a genuine Coen Brothers experience. Honestly, I, I mean that. The music, the performances, the, the writing, the visuals, everything comes together for me to make this a genuine Coen Brothers experience. And I don't think that they're trying to make the, the kinds of movies that they made in the, in the 90s. And I don't think it's fair to compare them to George Lucas because he did, they didn't take a 30-year break. Okay, George Lucas screwed up because he took a 30-year break from filmmaking. These guys have made a movie every year since The Big Lebowski, and they're, tr they're, they, they're aware of their abilities, and they're aware of where they are. They're not trying to, to uh, recreate something from the past. It's been a decade since The Big Lebowski. It's been 10 and years. And they've made a movie every year. Yeah, they have, but they've been different kinds of movies. They've kind of departed from what they had been doing, and they decided that they might experiment a little bit. And then when you revert back to it, you just kind of lose... You lose some steam, and I think they did. But, Graham, like I said before, like I said in my original review, this does feel like a genuine Coen Brothers experience. It's just lacking compared to the rest of them. I think this is a really good movie, and I can't wait to see it again, and I can't wait to like it even more. I had a more positive response uh, the first time I saw this than I did The Big Lebowski. And, you know, I've, I've probably seen that movie 600 times uh, <laughs> since I saw it the first time, and I love it, and I think it's arguably their best movie. So we'll see. I think it remains to be seen. I think this movie deserves a little more evaluation than a lot of us have been able to give it, having only seen it one time. And I might be speaking for myself. I've only seen it my, myself. I've only seen it one time. But I can't wait to see it again. All right, guys. We'll uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you both for uh, joining us again for another roundtable discussion. Uh, this has been a very interesting one. I'm glad to get a little contention uh, this time, and I'm I, you know I hope to be called out on my on my supposed political bias many times in the future. Oh, that we'll save that for the Body of Lies podcast. <laughs> All right, guys, thanks. <laughs>